Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 169, The Cusp of a New Era. Now, first, I want to thank our most recent patron, Emil Lachiev. Lachiev, I think I got that right. Thank you so much, Emil. And also then a quick note, I will be around Washington, D.C. and Asheville, North Carolina from September 15th to the 30th. So any listeners around those areas who want to meet up, uh, get in touch with me. You can, you know, write the, the podcast. You can find contact details on the website, a couple different ways, but it'd be nice to see some of you. And with all that... Let's begin. Season 8, which I'm calling The Calm Before the Storm. Now, the idea right now is for this season to cover, you know, 1896, where we begin today, all the way through to the beginning of the First Balkan War, spoiler alert, in 1912. So, just to some context, we're starting a brand new season, and that is what it intends to cover. Now, last time, you heard a special episode which dove into many of the challenges faced by Bulgaria's Muslims during the previous season, you know, basically 1879 until 1896. Before that, we summarized Season 7 from the end of the Russo-Turkish War through the difficult reign of Alexander Battenberg and ultimately to the rise of Ferdinand and Stefan Stambolov before culminating in Stambolov's assassination and Ferdinand's formal recognition. So that's where we begin. It's 1896. Stefan Stambolov is dead, and the country is ruled by Konstantin Stoilov. However, Ferdinand is still the premier political power in the country. R.J. Crampton writes how, quote, The recognition of Prince Ferdinand in 1896 was a turning point in Bulgarian history. The constitutional preoccupation of the first years of statehood and the insecurity caused by non-recognition could now be set aside. Order and stability, it seemed, had been achieved, and Bulgaria could now progress to economic restructuring in the pursuit of its foreign policy objectives. But the stability of the late 1890s was apparent rather than real and had been bought at considerable cost. End quote. Now, that's la- that last sentence is a little bit of a preview, but now I want to start by laying out in detail where Bulgaria is at this moment before diving into the narrative. So here we go. As I've mentioned before, Stoilov's government largely left foreign policy to Ferdinand, besides choosing to support the Macedonian revolutionaries, which they were more pushing. And instead, they focused on internal affairs. One major focus was encouraging industry. Now, Stambolov had been interested in this topic, but generally too distracted by internal security concerns to give it the attention it really needed. I previously mentioned how difficult this was, as making Bulgarian industry economically competitive relative to industrial giants like Germany and the UK was a very tall order. It was just incredibly difficult to get domestically produced industrial goods to compete with cheaper European imports. But the Stoilov government was trying. Back in 1894, it had provided domestic loans to industrial firms, and in 1897, 
It will decide that all Bulgarian government officials have to wear clothes and shoes produced in Bulgaria. In other words, they were trying to give Bulgarian industry both the resources it needed and a, at least small at this point, guaranteed market for its products. But now that Ferdinand was recognized, Stoilov was able to increase import duties, something that the Europeans obviously didn't like, but basically he couldn't do before because they needed to have the Europeans happy with Bulgaria to get them to recognize Ferdinand, but now that all that was done, he could afford to annoy them a little. Obviously, this new policy meant that those cheap imports from Europe were going to get less cheap, which, you know, is good for Bulgarian industrialists, but would undoubtedly hurt the quality of life of the average Bulgarian who enjoyed those cheaper products. You know, it's always a kind of economic uh, back and forth with that. But it was hoped that these new import duties would protect local industry from competition and help it develop. Anyone who's really studied developmental economics has heard this kind of path about a million times. But, you know, I'm not going to give any spoilers and let you know how it turned out, but just the economists out there are like, yeah, we know. This is what they always do. So we're still a long way from knowing whether this policy will pay off. On a side note, though, there was an interesting side effect from these policies in that small-scale handicrafts, one of Bulgaria's main economic industries during the Ottoman era, was hit from both sides. The industry was damaged by those cheap imports, obviously, but it was also now really ignored by the government, which was totally focused on larger-scale domestic producers. So, to me, they were like the real proper losers of this area. Nobody wanted to really support the handicrafts industry, so yeah, they just got it from all sides. Crampton writes how, back in 1893, women in Sopot had actually set imported cloth on fire and then attacked the home of the man who imported them, showing how a lot of people felt about, well, people in the small-scale kind of handicrafts industry felt about imports. Crampton then shows how, in 1880, Gavrovo had 70 such workshops that were making lace, but jumping into the future, by 1900, this would be down to just 23. And Gavrovo was one of the more successful areas in maintaining small-scale industry. So that gives an idea of just how much these handicrafts were damaged by the economic, well, shifting economic conditions, let's say, of this era. Samokov, for example, had been a thriving town that provided cloth for the Ottoman army. But by the late 19th century, it was a shadow of its former self, having failed to find alternative markets for its cloth and metalworking shops. So this gives you an idea, right? Some towns were just utterly devastated. We, we talked about this before by basically becoming independent from the Ottomans and losing a lot of those markets. But, you know, the economic conditions since independence have added on to that and, and really compounded those kind of economic shocks and the difficulties of having so many, you know, small-scale Bulgarian producers try to shift what they're doing to match the brand new kind of economic, political, and social conditions that they're finding themselves in. Another interesting story from Crampton tells about how a combination of changes in fashion, abandoning traditional belts for Western-style belts, cheaper imports, and a decline in brigandage also combined to hurt Bulgaria's domestic knife-making industry, noting that, quote, the adoption of Western-style belts meant that anyone attempting to carry the old-style large knife would not be able to keep his trousers in a socially acceptable position, end quote. Now, 
I just thought that was a rather amusing way to, to frame uh, some of these economic changes. But there you have it. Belts were hurting the Bulgarian knife industry. In addition, workers of precious metals who had previously sold most of their wares to wealthy Turks in Bulgaria were in a bit of a pickle because most of the wealthy Turks, as we've seen, left Bulgaria after 1897. Makers of traditional slippers also lost their customer base as they largely sold to Bulgaria's Muslims. Throughout Bulgaria, the combination of cheap Western imports, the growing popularity of Western-style, well, everything from furniture to clothes, and the migration of so many Muslims out of Bulgaria, as well as new borders being drawn, which disrupted old economic and social patterns, you know, the new border with Romania, the new border with Serbia, a lot of this disrupted old economic patterns. And all this really came together to completely remake the Bulgarian economic landscape by the late 19th century. Such that by now, by the mid to late 1890s, Bulgaria was a completely different economic place than it had been. Still, there were some benefits. By the mid-1890s, Bulgaria did have 29 breweries, so beer was widely available for the first time, something noted by many European travelers in Bulgaria. But there you have it. But what about agriculture? Again, recapping a bit, but during the Ottoman era, large Turkish landowners owned much of the land. Now you finally know what landowners do. You're welcome. But after 1879, many of those landowners were forced or pressured or chose, some combination, to leave Bulgaria, and much of their land was subsequently divided up between Bulgarian peasants, who then became small landowners themselves. Sounds great, right? Well, this did not solve the challenges faced by many of these peasants. Those small plots of land were subsequently repeatedly subdivided through inheritance. Right, So a farmer had two or three or four sons, and each of them got an equal portion of his land. And so every generation saw the farms get smaller and smaller. And smaller farms tend to be less productive. In general, larger farms are more productive, well, for a whole bunch of reasons we'll get into with the rise of the agrarians, but in the same way that if you wanted to like make cars or make most products on a really small scale, you're not going to have the economies of scale. It's going to be much harder and much more expensive. So, you know, Bulgarian peasants, yes, they own their land to a greater extent than ever before. However, that's not helping them much. They're still in a pretty difficult position. And in addition, while a great amount of attention was being paid to modernizing Bulgarian industry, the government in Sofia was neglecting farmers to the large part. And not really paying them much attention or offering them as much assistance as they seemed to need. All this combined with higher and higher taxes to help cover Bulgaria's growing army and need to invest in things like railroads, alongside a series of bad harvests, put Bulgaria's farmers in a terrible position by the late 1890s. In response, many farmers have begun asking the government to provide loans, most farmers take out loans to buy what they need to sow their harvest at the beginning of the harvest season and then pay them off when the harvest comes in. Hopefully, they have a good enough interest rate that they can still make a profit. But, you know, just to put this in context of how you know, small-scale farming tends to work. Farmers also ask the government to guarantee low prices for some basic consumer goods they would need, like soap. And in general, though, you know, they haven't gotten this assistance yet. And peasants are just feeling squeezed by 
poor crop yields and rising consumer prices, as well as a lack of access to good quality loans. Now, at this point, there isn't yet a powerful agrarian party, but, well, spoiler alert, all this discontent is certainly laying the groundwork for one. I'll also quickly note that about this time, tobacco has begun to replace wool and wheat as Bulgaria's main export crop because it fetches fetches a far higher value for its weight and therefore is good for transportation costs. This is something that has played an interesting role in the history of the U.S. as well and how the U.S. ended up with a whole bunch more whiskey than it ever had before. I did an episode for a podcast about that a long time ago. But basically, when you're a farmer and your roads, your infrastructure is bad, then a huge part of the cost of what you do is transporting it to market. And when transportation costs become a huge part of what you have to pay for, then finding crops that are more valuable per each kilo becomes extremely important. So that's in large part what is really pushing many Bulgarians towards becoming tobacco producers. And while we're not there yet, another spoiler alert, one day Bulgaria will become the leading tobacco producer in all of Europe. So those foundations are really being laid at this time. Another quick interesting note from Crampton, when peasants did manage to earn some money, you know, they had a you know good season, good, uh, good crop yield, in general, instead of investing it back into their farms and making their farms more productive by investing in machinery or something, they tended to use that, that money to become small-scale moneylenders. This gets back to the issue I just mentioned, where peasants in Bulgaria did not have access to good quality credit at reasonable interest rates. Basically, because European banks would not lend in Bulgaria, and so there wasn't a lot of competition, and as a result, the people who would lend money charged very high interest rates. As a result, if you were a peasant or really anyone and had some extra cash, you could get a much better return on your cash by lending it out at high interest rates rather than investing it in something productive. And, well, it doesn't take an economist or a genius to imagine that this kind of whole phenomenon is not great for the economy or society as a whole, right? It's it's leaving everyday people in the position where if they need to borrow money, they can only do so at very, very bad conditions. And it means that few people are investing in kind of improving the economy and instead are just sort of exploiting their friends and neighbors and such to make a high profit. So, yeah, not a great situation. Now, what about foreign policy? Where are we at this moment? I've spoken before about how Russia, Germany, and Austria-Hungary had previously formed that Three Emperors Alliance, but how their interests had subsequently diverged and that alliance largely fell apart. In particular, Russia and Austria-Hungary had begun to have competing interests in the Balkans, where, for example, Serbia and its government and monarchy were both trying to decide whether they should align more with Austria-Hungary or with Russia. However, Bulgaria's new policy in Macedonia was by now bringing Russia and Austria-Hungary back together. Basically, both states were distracted, Russia by expansion in the Far East and Austria-Hungary by internal challenges. And as a result, both of them wanted the Balkans to remain quiet for now. And, well, Bulgaria was doing the opposite, so both of them were not too happy. So, Glennie describes the situation around this time, writing, quote, After the fall of Stambula, 
the Macedonian Chetas roamed around Sofia and other cities with impunity, bribing, intimidating, extorting, and shooting. All refugees were expected to contribute a monthly sum of 100 leva to the cause. Those who refused could expect a visit at 4 o'clock in the morning from some burly compatriots. End quote. So, although so far the attempts at revolution in Macedonia have failed completely, Macedonian revolutionary organizations are only growing in strength and influence within Bulgaria and are helping to foster a culture of criminality and corruption. Of course, the longer-term impact, impact and legacy of this remains to be seen, and later in this episode I'll go into a lot more detail about what's happening with the Macedonian revolutionaries, but on the ground in places like Sofia, that's how it's impacting things. Another interesting challenge coming into, into its own at this period is the nature of the professionals actually running Bulgaria. Remember that in the early days, Bulgaria faced a huge challenge in finding lawmakers and officials of all kinds with relevant experience to help run the new country. However, soon, groups filled with more and more and more of these professionals as schools produced a huge glut of them. But a new trend developed with the downfall of Stambolov. As Stoilov, you'll recall, fired basically everyone connected with Stambolov at every level of government and replaced them with new people, often with far less experience. So, this marked the beginning of a new trend, where new governments will replace every position they can with loyal supporters, whether those are partisan positions or meritocratic ones. This, again, I think is a very common practice in the United States at this time. It's known as patronage, and it's kind of a, a core part of the kind of corruption that is occurring in the Gilded Age in the U.S. in this era, and, well, it's coming to Bulgaria as well. But, in Bulgaria, it's known as partisanstvo, so kind of partisanship some, some, as a rough translation. Now, this trend accompanies another interesting one. I mentioned before that Bulgaria's new set of schools and universities were producing a very large number of lawyers and similar professionals, far in excess of what Bulgaria really needed at this time. So, Although each political party now needed to be ready to staff an entire government, basically if they ever won an election, Somehow, there were still too many educated graduates for the amount of available jobs that were kind of appropriate for them. Crampton summarizes the results of this, writing, quote, This unemployed intelligentsia tended to drift towards opposition groups who promised them jobs when that group was included in government. Parties thus became less and less organizations dedicated to the pursuit of political principles than mechanisms for satisfying a lust for office, end quote. Now, anyone familiar with Bulgarian politics today will probably recognize this phenomenon. But Crampton goes on, writing, quote, This aspect of partisanstvo also encouraged the splitter, splintering of parties. If there were ten rather than three opposition parties, there were ten rather than three groups offering the prospect of high office. Whereas in the 1880s, the liberals had split over constitutional issues, and in 1886, Stambolov had formed the National Liberal Party to distinguish himself from the pro-Russian liberal groups, in later years, splits in all parties were to occur over trivial issues or over personalities. And the more parties there were, the easier it was for the executive to play one off against the others, end quote. And, well, that is what Ferdinand has by now learned to do. 
Because the ministries of war and foreign affairs were effectively under his control, all he really had to do was have those two ministers resign, and this would effectively force the government to resign itself and trigger new elections. And those elections, as we've seen time and time again, generally have very low turnout, and it's pretty easy for whoever's in charge to gently push the electorate in the direction the government wants, enabling Ferdinand to basically get the outcomes in the governments he wishes. So, we're in an ironic position where, yes, ostensibly Bulgaria is a democracy, but really, it gets the government not that the people want, it gets the government that Ferdinand wants. Which, again, plays into that phenomenon that we kind of talked about in some previous episodes, where a lot of average Bulgarians feel like, what's the point in participating in the political process when, you know, the, the, the prince, the elites, whoever, are just going to do whatever they want to do anyways. This is undoubtedly fueling that mindset. Now, Crampton points out the irony of Ferdinand's level of control here, writing, quote, In 1881, Alexander had engineered a coup and given himself powers he failed to use. Ferdinand simply operated the existing systems to construct his personal rule, end quote. So Alexander was always so upset that the Constitution didn't give him enough power, Ferdinand realized that actually he could have pretty near absolute power within the Constitution just fine. Now, it's at this point we pick back up in early 1896. At the beginning of the year, Ferdinand was officially recognized by the Ottoman Sultan as Prince of Bulgaria and Governor of Eastern Rumelia. The two were still technically distinct entities, although in practice, not at all. In March, the monarch arrived in Constantinople in person to meet the Sultan, who, remember, was still technically his sovereign. Abdul Hamid II pulled out all the stops, greeting Ferdinand in a grand manner and awarding him a palace filled with custom furniture bearing his royal seal. The highest decoration in the empire was also given to him and, much to his liking, a new uniform, as Ferdinand was made an honorary field marshal of the Ottoman army. Now, to be honest, I found that last one quite interesting as I never would have guessed that Ferdinand was once technically an Ottoman field marshal, but there you have it. Now, Constant speculates that these week, it was in these weeks in the old imperial capital that the idea was planted in the head of Ferdinand of becoming a kind of new Bulgarian Byzantine emperor with Constantinople as his capital. He even asked the sultan to allow him to enter the Hagia Sophia alone. And when he was in there, he nudged a carpet to the floor to the side and placed his feet on the floor where he believed Byzantine emperors had once done so and had a kind of very moving moment that he wrote about later. Now, after all this, Ferdinand embarked on a trip to several European capitals to meet the great powers who had just recognized him, although he avoided Vienna as he was worried his son's conversion to orthodoxy would make him unwelcome in the deeply Catholic Austrian capital. And he was correct. Uh, Constant notes with some amusement that just as the Russians had felt betrayed by Bulgaria for taking a Catholic ruler, the Austrians now felt betrayed that the dynasty had moved to orthodoxy. Although Ferdinand was still Catholic, but, you know, his son in the air. Blah, blah, blah. Now, the Kaiser of Germany was trying to convince the Austrians to calm down and let politics dictate their, their kind of policy towards Bulgaria, rather than religiously fueled emotions. Himself being pretty annoyed that Austria had worked for so many years to get Ferdinand recognized by Russia, and that basically 
allowing the son and heir to convert to orthodoxy was the only way that was going to happen. And yet, here is Austria absolutely furious that this thing that they wanted to happen happened the only way it could. So, yeah, Kaiser Wilhelm is just rolling his eyes at the Austrians. I mean, after all, Bulgaria was at this moment very ready to collaborate closely with the Austrians and was led by an Austrian itself. So, you know, Bulgaria could have been a logical kind of ally for Austria in the Balkans. But the Austrians were rejecting Bulgaria because of this religious issue, which, well, if you look at it from the perspective of German kind of realpolitik, is all rather insane. So the German chancellor would basically argue, I think quite rightfully, that Austria was angry that Ferdinand had done something which they perceived as moving towards Russia, right, converting the son to orthodoxy, and Austria was responding by basically shutting them out and pushing them even further towards St. Petersburg, which again, from the perspective of realpolitik, is all a rather insane way to run your foreign policy. But if relations with Austria remained bad, Ferdinand was warmly welcomed in St. Petersburg and afterwards in Paris. Things also went okay when he visited Berlin, though Ferdinand felt somewhat slighted by not getting treated as well as in other capitals. But, well, there you have it. In May, the prince finally returned to Sofia and was soon joined by, joined by his wife, who you'll recall ran off to France in protest of the crown's prince's conversion, blah, blah, blah. But, well, it seems Ferdinand's mother had convinced her to return and kind of patch things up with Ferdinand, though she was still far from happy with him. Soon, Ferdinand received an invitation to Tsar Nicholas's coronation in St. Petersburg and was delighted to finally be treated as a regular sovereign on such an august occasion. However, this moment also planted another idea in his head, according to Stephen Constant. Because Ferdinand was still technically an Ottoman vassal, at the ceremony he was placed next to the Khan of Kiva and the Emir of Bukhara. Constant writes how, quote, it lumped him, a descendant of Louis XIV, to the malicious delight of the Russian court, together with the moth-eaten puppet rulers of two Central Asiatic states, which had only recently been absorbed into the Russian Empire, end quote. Thus, it seems that Ferdinand was by now more determined than ever than to find a way out of Bulgaria's vassal status so he could finally be treated as an equal on the European stage. But while Ferdinand was abroad, matters at home continued unabated. Back at the end of 1895, the Supreme Macedonian Committee had met to resolve some internal issues, mostly regarding people taking actions without following rules on who they should inform about them, yada yada yada. And so the committee was trying to kind of rework itself. Now, this committee now gained a nickname which we'll basically know it by from here on out, the Supremists, because they viewed themselves as the supreme kind of Macedonian committee and that all other Macedonian revolutionaries should all be underneath them and they should be at the top of that pyramid. Now, they also decide, decided, at least for now, against any further armed action in Macedonia and to instead focus on raising money and establishing themselves as that kind of supreme committee in the wider Balkan region. Perry, in his book on the Macedonian revolutionary movements, writes how, quote, for their part, the Supreme Macedonian Committee leaders, once elected, did not pay great attention to the wishes of their membership, but instead acted autonomously, apparently expecting the rank and file to rally around them whenever called upon to do so. Thus, 
the Supreme Macedonian Committee was in reality two ineffectually linked segments, the local and regional groups, which were occupied with provincial matters, and the center, which, while not reflecting the will of the provinces necessarily, was nevertheless the policy-making body, end quote. So that's kind of what's happening with the supremacists. They're increasingly disconnected between the local chapters and the you know, main committee in Sofia, and they're trying to kind of reform themselves and focus on you know, building up their strength. However, there was still a radical segment intent on using violence, and in the spring of 1896, the supremacists were only just able to placate these factions within their own organization by forming a kind of general staff designed to solely focus on military elements of their mission to liberate Macedonia. However, there was still a divide between the supremacists and the Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, the MRO. The supremacists, as you'll recall, had career military men in their ranks, and basically those military men doubted the ability of peasants to sustain a revolution and liberate Macedonia, while the MRO, by contrast, were deeply committed ideologues who were passionate about the idea, the concept of a peasant-driven revolution. So the supremacists are more the kind of practical ones, right? They're the military guys, and the MRO are the ideological ones. Now, in one key meeting, an MRO leader was deeply offended that a supremacist leader doubted the capabilities of the peasants, ultimately ending the meeting by basically spitting and leaving in disgust. This marked the kind of final split between these two groups, right? They had kind of agreed to work together before and let each other know about what they were doing. They hadn't really let each other know about what they were doing, but now a proper split occurred. With the supremacists, again, based in Sofia, backed by the Bulgarian government, filled with army officers, taking a more cautious approach, and by contrast, the MRO, based in Solon or Thessaloniki, with more ideological revolutionaries devoted to the idea that the people are the only ones who can free themselves. Despite several more attempts at reconciliation during early 1896, including an attempt to trade some 20,000 rifles for the loyalty for the loyalty of the MRO to the supremacists, the two organizations devolved into bitter enemies. However, despite many attempts, the supremacists to, made to kind of discredit the MRO the supremacists were still too weak and disorganized to do very much. Again, they still suffered from that disconnect between their leaders and the local and regional chapters. Around this time, a split also occurred between the MRO and the Bulgarian Exarchate. Essentially, the MRO was, as we know, a kind of a more liberal organization, aiming for equal rights, autonomy, the improvement of living standards. You know, they were the, the passionate, passionate ideological revolutionaries. The Bulgarian Exarchate, by contrast, was mostly interested in expanding its own religious influence and none of those other things. The Exarchate, by contrast, was only really interested in expanding its own influence and none of those other things. As a result, a split occurred in the educated population of the region. Many of the teachers at Exarchate schools sided with the MRO, while the Exarchate worried that the MRO were basically socialists and atheists who would spread such ideas among the peasantries, and so they were very skeptical, even conducting purges of MRO sympathizers in their schools from time to time. 
Then there were the wealthier and more conservative people in Macedonia who also generally sided with the church, sharing the belief that the MRO's activities would basically hurt their businesses. All of this further created a rift between MRO sympathizers and Bulgaria as a whole, as more and more MRO members viewed the exarchate as an extension of the Bulgarian state that was trying to suppress them. And of course, they connected the supremists with the Bulgarian state. So all this is kind of further deepening these divisions. Ah, but the divisions over Macedonia don't even stop there. While he was in Constantinople being recognized, Ferdinand had received an offer from the Sultan to further increase exarchate influence in Macedonia in return for suppressing any armed incursions. So, basically the old Stambolov policy. Now, while Prince Ferdinand felt that this was a great deal, Stoilov and the, and the uh, supremists were outraged at the suggestion, instead insisting that Ferdinand must demand autonomy for Macedonia and not accept any compromises. Although Ferdinand ostensibly tried to push this policy, he ended up making the original deal, so ironically, the Bulgarian government was sort of back now to Stambolov's old moderate policy in Macedonia. Though again, this has nothing to do with the MRO, who are still committed to revolution. Now, this was a risky move, you know, angering the supremacists, uh, consider, considering what Macedonian radicals had recently done to Stambolov, you know, definitely dangerous for Ferdinand to do. But fortunately for him, the supremacists were much too disorganized and weak at this point to do very much against him. But it did still strain relations between the Bulgarian government and the supremacists. Soon, the Ottomans found a secret arms shipment moving through Macedonia, and although it was an MRO shipment, they basically connected it with the supremacists incorrectly, and it triggered a general crackdown and made the Ottomans even more wary of the government in Sofia. And with that, I will wrap up this episode. We've now got a better sense of where Bulgaria is in 1896 at the moment the season is beginning and what's happening with all the Macedonian revolutionaries. Trust me, it's very difficult to summarize all that. There's so much back and forth and uh, so many characters and yeah, there's always a lot happening. But I, I hope you've got a general overview. Ferdinand is now secure on the throne and is working to build support in the capitals of Europe. But all that intense infighting on every single level of the Macedonian movement more broadly is making its success, well, seem less and less likely. But we'll see. Next time, we'll cover yet more Macedonian violence, political maneuvering, and if there's time in the episode, even a war. So, I'll see you then. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written by the talented Teddy Rabin. As always, you can see more info about this episode in the episode kind of blog post, which is linked in the description below, so check that out.